Blog Talk Radio. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do ya? And it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major Hallelujah. 
welcome, friends and family. Uh, today's broadcast entitled Yahshua the Messiah and the Birth of the Pagan Christ. I would like to welcome bro- my brothers and sisters, friends and enemies. Um, today I would like to begin this broadcast with a statement. There is nothing new under the sun. Because of this fact, let me check something real quick. Okay. Because of this fact, remains that since the time of Yeshua, the Messiah, there has always been the spirit of discord. The spirit of discord causes confusion, conflict, and chaos. And it will constantly test the faith and patience of Yah's chosen few. In this broadcast, I will discuss the root of this discord and hope to give you a better understanding about where this chaos comes from. Today's message, like I said, is entitled Yahshua the Messiah and the Birth of the Pagan Christ. Now, before I get into this this uh, teaching, I want to first express what today is and the importance of this day. Today is the official Passover, okay? The official Passover comes 14 days after the New Year. And you know, since I've been speaking about this for a number of years, the um, date of Purim, which was the 26th of February, 14 days after that, New Year, or the celebration of Purim, we've had the uh, Passover. That's 14 days, which fell on today, the 13th. And for this day, I did a special ritual, lit a candle, had a nice meal, and burnt out these demons. And um, it felt very good. Okay. Now, the opening audio was uh, Fantasia singing Hallelujah. That was a beautiful. Um, now, I'd like to get into this broadcast. <clears throat> now, first, I want to begin with a little history. Fourth century, 325 A.D., exactly 1,696 years ago. At this time, there was a political event called the First Council of Nicaea. For those of you who are not familiar with this, with this council, here's a quick review. Uh, Constantine the first was the Roman Empire from 306 to 337. He stands out among others because he was the first Roman Empire to convert to Christianity. Constantine I was born Flavius Valerius Constantinus. He is known in Roman Catholic history as St. Constantine the Great. And it reads from the biography. It says, Constantine the Great summoned the bishops of Constantine, uh, uh, bishops of the, of the Christian church to Nicaea to address divisions in the church. The first council of Nicaea was a council of Christian bishops convened in Nicaea in 
Bithynia, which is present-day Turkey, by the Roman Empire Constantine I in A.D. 325. The council was the first effort to attain consensus in the church through an assembly representing all of Christendom. Its main accomplishment was settled or for a settlement of the Christological issues of the relationship of Jesus to God the Father. Now, a quick note, before I continue the debate concerning the concept of Jesus to God, the Father was already spawned in ignorance, okay? We know this because long before this council took place, the proper name was Yahshua, spoken by an Hebraic, Hebraic Afro-Asiatic dialect, not an Indo-European Roman dialect. We will discuss this later at a later time. Okay? Now, the council did not create the doctrine of the deity of Christ, but it did settle to some degree the debate with the early Christian communities regarding the divinity of Christ. This idea of the divinity of Christ, along with the idea of Christ as a messenger, from the one God, the Father, had long existed in various parts of Roman Empire. The divinity of Christ, the divinity of Christ, had uh, let me see, the divinity of Christ had also long widely endorsed by the Christian community in the other pagan cities of Rome. The Council affirmed and defined that it believed to be the teachings of the apostles regarding who Christ is, that Christ is the one true God, the deity with the Father. Okay. Now, this part is important because at this time, the apostles were still very influential and Christians were very, uh, were being persecuted like crazy. Okay. You had the Hebrew Christians and Jewish revolts going on. Emperor Nero destroyed the Second Temple, the lineage of King Herod, and the Biosius high priest denying the divinity of the Messiah. You had the Colosseum being built to kill uh, anyone that claims to be a Christian. It was a time of great chaos. So when they say the council affirmed and defended what it believed to be the teachings of the apostles, who was Christ, who, who Christ is, uh, they took this information serious because they were being killed for speaking the truth. Okay? They're speaking their truth. Now, those in the council knew the word. This word was straight from Yeshua, passed down to the mouth of the apostles. Okay? Now, here's another point to think about. The Christians at this time were extremely different from the so-called Christians today. They were named Christians by the Greeks, who, which comes from the word Christos, okay? Christos, which means the anointed one or, or ointment, to apply oil to the skin, okay? The Greeks used the name without understanding. They used it as ridicule, but if you apply it to the Hebrew, meaning it means the Messiah. The only place in the Bible it is used is in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, which talks about the 70 weeks prophecy of 490 years. The book of Daniel speaks about the coming of the Messiah and the future events after Yahshua is murdered. Okay? Now, and it reads, 
And this is from Daniel. It says, um, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined among the people and upon the holy city to finish the transgressions and to make an end of sin and to make recon- reconciliation for iniquities and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the visions and prophecies and to anoint the holy, uh, the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commit commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troubled times. Huh? After three score and three weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and there and the end therefore shall be with the flood and unto the end of the war desolation and determined okay now we have um uh compliment compliment complimentary complimentary <laughs> uh verses that are in the new testament to complement the old and this is entitled The Abomination of Desolation. Okay? Now, I advise you to do a deep, deeper study on this so that you have a better understanding um, on your own. So you can take what I've told you here, and this hopefully will spark your interest so you can do a deeper study on this. Okay? The Abomination of Desolation. Mark chapter 13, verse 14 through 23. But when ye shall but when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein, to take anything out of his house. But let him that is in the field not turn back again for the for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child and them that give suck in those days. Now understand that this particular message in the New Testament is for this time. Okay? It's for this time because it is repeating what happened during the time of the um, Edomites in the book of Maccabees. Because this exact thing that happened back then is happening now. But it's because of the characteristics of the people that did this then are the offspring. Okay? It's the offspring of those. Everything just repeats itself. Okay? And it says, and pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, for in those days shall be affliction, right, in the future, in these days, now, shall be affliction such as was not from beginning of the creation which Ayah created unto this time. Neither shall there be, uh, neither shall be. And except that Yahshua has shortened those days, no flesh shall be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. And then, if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or Lo, he is there, believe him not. 
For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. Now understand, Mark is speaking to you. Now the Antichrist will come first in this time. I hope you're aware that uh, what's going on now with the coronavirus, with uh, uh, the Great Reset, um, you have the uh, economy falling down, you have the stimulus check destroying the dollar, you have your freedoms being taken away. We are at that time. Okay? Now, when it speaks about shortening the days, it talks about revelations. My next broadcast is going to focus on revelations. Uh, I have another broadcast that might come before that, um, but because I'm going to explain a lot more, I'm going to try to get on here more to, to give uh, y'all information because it's time. Now, false Christ and false prophets will rise. How many false prophets were speaking during the time before Trump came? Did the prophecy come true or did it not? Understand, you have a lot of people out here that have dropped the ball. A lot of churches that aren't opening up. A lot of people that should be working that aren't working. Okay? Are they the elect? The elect are the ones that will, you will recognize that will be doing the work that Yah has appointed them to do at this time. Now, if you can see that, if you can see what's happening, right? Then you will know that the book of Daniel was speaking about the coming of the Messiah and the book of Mark was clarifying the abomination of desolation which is the anti-Messiah, right? The anti-Christ, the anti-Messiah. When Daniel speaks about the anointed, he's speaking about the followers of the righteous teacher that will correct the evil on our planet, okay? There's a righteous teacher coming that will correct the evil on our planet. Now, before I get uh, too far off track, the reason the Greeks did not know anything about the Messiah, they did not read the book of Daniel because at this time they were pagans. Okay? Now, what I'm saying is that the reason why they didn't know about the Messiah and they were making jokes about the anointed because they were pagans, so they weren't reading the Old Testament. They had to rewrite the book in Greek, the Septuagint, in order to understand the Hebrews of the city Yaakov used the word anointed in reference to being a follower of the anointed one, baptized in water and made clean. They also used this word anointed to edify king or prophet that was anointed by the spirit of the Most High. So the early Christians before 325 AD were true to this word anointed. Those Christians that existed prior to the Christians we have now, were true Christians, okay? That was a that was a true. Now, when you hear me complain about Christianity, I'm not talking about the true root. I'm talking uh, about the corruption. The true group that I'm speaking about were called Hebrew Christians. They were they were early Christians who maintained Hebrew religious practices. From the time of the inception of Christianity until approximately the faith, uh, um, the fifth century. Okay, excuse me. 
they were associated with the Christian gospel. Okay, that was actually a quote from Wikipedia. Now, <clears throat> when you study early Hebrew Christian, uh, Christian uh, Christianity, you will discover that they were forced to migrate to the West Coast and the southern parts of Africa. Okay? Because the 5th century is when Roman Christianity became the dominant religion. Therefore, the Hebrews had to leave the area of Judea because the new Christians did not tolerate any other views except that of Rome. So where is the safer place to go? Right? If, you are in, if you're in Africa, if you're in, in the area of Judea, and Rome comes in, and now you're a threat, where's the safest place to go if you're African, right? Now, would you go to the north, where it was cold in a part of the Roman Empire, right? Where the pagans were? Or would you go south, where it was warm and out of reach of the Roman Empire? Now, later you discover that the Hebrew Christians escaped this threat, but then were usurped and destroyed during the rise of another threat called Islam during the 7th century, okay? The threat of conversion, enslavement, or death, right? They had to convert, or they were enslaved, or they died. That's what the, that's what the Hebrew Christians went through. Now, if that did not destroy the Hebrews, the Christians, then 700 years later, they had to deal with the decrees that set off the slave trade of 1452. Today, the last remaining ancient Hebrew Christians are found in Ethiopia, Coptic Christians. Okay? Now, back to the overstanding of the Hebrew Christians. Uh, Alistair McGrath, a former professor of historical theology at the University of Oxford, claimed that, quote, I quote, first century Hebrew Christians were totally faithful religious Jews. He states that the only difference from other contemporary Jews is in their acceptance of Yeshua as the Messiah. However, as Christianity grew throughout the Gentile world, Christians were cut off from their Hebrew roots. Now, did you hear that? I don't want to just overstep over, uh, um, bypass over that. The original, the original Jews, the original Hebrew Christians, right? The original ones. It says that they accepted Messiah. They accepted Yeshua. But the fake Jews, the so-called ones, the ones that are uh, that hijacked the spirituality, they don't accept it. So you have to distinguish between what it is that we're seeing when it comes to those that that um, don't accept Messiah. When they say the Jews don't don't accept Messiah. Well, those that don't accept them, that claim to be Jews, aren't Jews because the original Hebrews accepted them, even according to Alistair McGrath. Okay. Now, would you pay close attention to this last part? This is where it gets very interesting. It says, uh, same guy, he says, Hebrew Christianity fell into decline, probably due to the early prosecution of the sect by the Jerusalem Temple authorities, followed by the Jewish-Roman War, 66, like 66 AD to 135 AD, and then the growing anti-Judaism, perhaps best personified by 
Marcion in the second century, and with more than a little help from the Roman Empire Constantine in the fourth century. It faded quickly into the background. It was dominated by the Gentile-based Christianity, Gentile-based Christianity, which became the official religion of the Roman Empire and which took counsel uh, of sites in the Holy uh, Land, such as the Church of the Holy uh, Sepulchre and the Canaanite. Uh, okay. Now, I wanted to go over that before we get into the First Council of Nicaea, because I wanted to lay the foundation for understanding on why this council happened and uh, who were the instigators of it. Okay. Now, to help with this, we will um, highlight the seven major players whom I will explain in greater details later. Okay. Uh, now, the first, of course, is Roman Emperor Constantine. Okay, these are the instigators, the, the players, right? Then we have a priest by the name of Arius. Uh, we have a bishop named uh, Eusebius, and finally another bishop named Malatius of Lycopolis. And now the next group of players are as follows. We have the first. Uh, the first is a Roman church father named Titus Flavius Clement, also known as Clemente of Alexandria. Then we have the Roman church father named Lucian of Antioch. And last we have Origen. We have Origen Adamantius and priest Arius of Alexandria. Okay. These seven men changed the foundation of Christianity forever from an Hebraic African spirituality rooted in the history and culture of the Hebrew people into a European pagan influence now known as the Holy Roman Empire. Okay. Now I'm going to take a quick break my first break, and then I will be back to finish this discussion. Okay.
Welcome back. Okay. Now, that was um, Kumbaya, and I found, I found this uh, audio file. I was looking for some um, music, and I heard these brothers singing, and it was just like, it was in Africa, and they were just singing, it was like a workshop, and they were just sitting down singing, and it sounds so good. I was like, wow, that was absolutely beautiful. Okay. Now, if you ever wondered why the church is filled with babble and contradictions, after this broadcast, you will not be confused. To begin this section of this broadcast, I will start with origin. Okay? Now, who is origin? Origin is Greek for origin, Adamatis. Um, origin is Greek. It's a Greek. It's origin Adamatis. Uh, he was born 18, uh, 185, 1885, to 254 AD. He was an early Christian scholar and theologian and one of the most distinguished writers of the early Christian church. Despite not being considered a church father by most Christians who recognize this distinction, according to tradition, he held to, uh, he held to have been an Egyptian uh, who taught in Alexandria, arriving the catechetical uh, school uh, of Alexandria where Clemente of Alexandria had taught. The Patriarch of Alexandria at, at first supported Origen, but later expelled him for being ordained without the Patriarch's permission. He re- relocated to Caesarea Martima and died there after being tortured during a prosecution. Using his knowledge of Hebrew, he produced the Hexapala and a corrected Septuagint. He wrote commentaries on most of the books of the Bible. In De Principalis, on, uh, on First Principles, he articulated one of the first philosophical expositions of Christian doctrine. He interpreted scriptures allegorically and developed certain doctrines was similar to Neo-Pythagorean and Neoplatist. Like Plotinus, he wrote that the soul passes through successive stages of incarnation before eventually reaching the imagined even demons being reunited with God. For origin, God was the first principle in Christ. The Logos was subordinate to him. His views of a hierarchical structure in the Trinity, the temporary temporality of matter, the fabulous preexistence of soul, and the monstrous restoration which follows from it were declared uh, anathema in the 6th century. Now, this is from Wikipedia 2011. Now, this word anathema comes from the Greek root. Simply, it means something dedicated especially to evil. From, I sit upon, offer as a votive gift. Originally means something lifted up as an offering to the God. It later evolved to mean to be formally set apart, banished, exiled, excommunicated, denounced, 
sometimes accused of literacy accused of literacy terms. Okay. Some three hundred years later, the death of Origen Adamatius, the Church of Rome banished his teachings because they found that they were dedicated to evil. Now, to be clear, I have to read what Origen wrote if we still uh, can find it because they were burning the book. So what were his teachings? Okay, What were his teachings? And what is the etymology of the name Origen? Okay, Because we've got to figure out what it is that they burned. Now, I don't, you know, anyway. His Greek name Origen means child of horse, from horse and born. That's what his Greek name means. His nickname or a cognomen, Adamantius, derives from Greek, which means unconquerable or unbreakable. Most of the understanding of Lucifer and Satan derives from the commentaries of Origen. Later in life, he went insane. Okay? He castrated himself because he was obsessed with the Bible. He was more of an occultist than a Christian theologian, in my opinion. Okay, that's what I think. I think he was more of an occultist. However, his influence on the church, the Catholic church, is key. Next, we have Titus Flavius Clements, a.k.a. Clemente of Alexandria. Titus Flavius Clemente, 150 to 215, known as Clemente of Alexandria, to distinguish him from Clemente of Rome, was a Christian theologian and head of the noted uh, catechetical school of Alexandria. Clemente is best remembered as a teacher of origin. Okay? He united Greek philosophy traditions with Christian doctrines and valued Gnostics that with communicate a communion for all people could be held by common Christians, specially chosen by God. Okay. Now he it says he united Christian philosophical tradition with Christian doctrine, right? Greek philosophy with Christian doctrine, and valued Gnostics that, with communion for all people, could be held by common Christians, uh, specially chosen. Okay. Then he constantly opposed the concept of Gnosticism as defined by the Gnostics. He used the term Gnostics for Christians who had attained the deeper teachings of the Logos. He developed a Christian uh, Platonism. He presented the goal of Christians' life as uh, deification, deification, identified both as Platonism, assemblation into God, and the biblical imitation of God. Like Origen, he arose from Alexandria's school and was well-versed in pagan literature. Origen succeeded Clemente as head of the school. Now, hopefully, as I'm reading all of this information, you're starting to see the picture. Now, if not, I want you to stay with me, okay, because all this has a purpose. I'm doing all this for a purpose, all right? Setting this up going slowly because during this time of darkness you're going to need all the information that you can get to understand that the people that you're listening to may not know what they're talking about and may not be well informed so you must be informed yourself alright now next we have Lucian of Antioch 
Lucian is also commonly credited with the critical recension, uh, which means Lucian changed the Bible of the text of the Septuagint and the Greek New, New Translation, which was later used by uh, Chrysostom and the later Greek fathers, and which lies at the basis of the Texas Receptus. Germain mentions that copies were known in his day as Explaria Luciania. But in other words, he speaks rather despairingly of the text of Lucian. In the absence of definite information, it is impossible to decide the merit of his critical labor. He believed in this literal sense of the, of the biblical text and thus laid stress on the need of textual accuracy. He undertook to revise the Septuagint based on the original Hebrew. Lucian 240-312 founded a college of Antioch which strove to contract the dangerous astrological alliance between, Roman, uh, between Rome and Alexandria. Uh, which strove to exalt tradition and teach Christianity mixed with pagan philosophy. So I got that. Anyway, historians often wrongly attribute the Arian heresy to Lucian. Since since Arius was his former student, however, Arius and his heretical teachings that Jesus Christ was a created being is stoutly refuted by his former master, Lucian of Antioch, whose creed set forth all three members of the Godhead on exact scriptural grounds. He is sometimes called a Judaizer because he taught the Ten Commandments, including the seventh-day Sabbath, which was greatly kept outside of the Roman and Alexandria at that time. Whether friends of, of opponents, they all agree that Lucian was the editor who passed on to the world the revised text. You hear this? You're hearing this now. The New Testament text, which was adopted at the birth of all the great churches of the Reformation. Lucian died a martyr, martyr's death, and about 312 A.D. Okay? Now, it's hard to pin this guy. It's Lucian. It's difficult to know uh, what his uh, theology was, but he was one of the key players in the Council of Nicaea, because I'm setting this all up for the Council of Nicaea, because now you can see more and more confusions being in. You have more church fathers, more edits, and more revisions, okay? You're starting to get um, uh, changes in the New Testament. Now, mind you, the uh, original Hebrews, the, the Hebraic, Asiatic Hebrews are already uh, uh, are kind of like fading into the background now. Okay, we're here, we're seeing the more Indo-European Roman uh, people now are coming into the forefront. Very interesting. Now, you stay with me. It's very important to lay this out because these men are considered the church fathers and the root of the Catholic Church. I want to lay this out. Before I speak about the Messiah, because these fools started the doctrine that Ayah and Yeshua are not one, and because this, and because of this, we now have the doctrine based on the so-called church fathers. 
okay? This is why we're all confused, like I said. Now, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, it says Eusebius of Caesarea, Caesarea was 263 to 339 AD, called Eusebius um, Famphili, became the bishop of Caesarea and Palestine about the year 314. Eusebius historians uh, and Polemistic is one of the most renowned church fathers. Uh, he, with Pamphilius, was a scholar of the biblical canon. Uh, canon. He wrote demonstrations of the, of the gospel, preparations of the gospel, and on discrepancies between the gospel, studies of the biblical text. As father of the church history, he produced the Ecclesiastical History of the Life of Pamphilius, the Chronicles, and All the Martyrs. From a dogmatic point of view, Eusebius stands entirely upon the shoulders of Origen. Okay, now remember Origen, the one that was uh, kicked out of the church 300 years later because his writings were evil. Okay, he stands on the shoulders of this guy. Like Origen, he started from the found fundamental thoughts of the absolute sovereignty, monarch of, of God. God is the cause of all beings, but he is not merely a cause in him. Everything good is included from him all, like originates, and he is the source of all virtues. God sent Christ into the world that it may partake of the blessings, including in the essence of God. Now, this all sounds good, right? Sounds good. Christ is good. Christ is God and is a ray of the eternal life, but the figure of the ray is so limited by Eusebius that he expresses expressly distinguishes the Son as distinct from Father, as a ray is also distinguished from its source of the Son. You see, because they don't have the full understanding, they always seem to miss the mark. Okay, now finally we get to Bishop named Malatius of Lycopolis, okay? Melatius of Melatius, okay, died 327. Let's uh, say Melatius or Melatius, what is it? Melatius or Melatius. He died 325 AD, uh, was a bishop of Lycopolis in Egypt. He is known mainly as the founder and namesake of Miletians 305 One of several uh, Sects in early church history Which were considered uh, Was concerned about the case uh, With which lapses Christian uh, Re-entered the church The supporters that Malatius drew around him included uh, 80 uh, 28 other bishops At least some of whom he Personally ordained And the objections against him included that he ordained people in regions uh, where he lacked authority. His group went by the name Church of the Martyrs, inherently objecting to the uh, re-acceptance by other bishops of people who chose to avoid the risk of martyrdom. Malatias' influence extended into Palestine. The Council of Nicaea in 325 attempted to create peace with the Mil Miletians. Uh, Melatius was allowed to remain bishop of 
Lycopolis, but was no longer to ordain bishops outside his region. The bishops had he the bishops he had already ordained were accepted under certain restrictions and he had to be and had to be ordained. Melesius' death followed in 327, and he was succeeded as leader of his hand-picked successor, John Archop. The effort to bring unity proved unsuccessful. His followers sided with the Arians in their controversy and existed as a separate sect until the 5th century. Okay. The Council of Nicaea in 325... Uh, A.D. attempted to create peace with the uh, Miletians, and Melatius was allowed to remain bishop of Lycopolis, but was no longer an ordained bishop outside his region. The bishops he had already ordained were accepted under certain restrictions and uh, had to be reordained. Melatius' uh, death followed soon after the council met, and the effort to bring Unity proved unsuccessful. His followers sided with the Arians in their controversy and existed as a separate sect till the 5th century. All that was from uh, Wikipedia 2021. <clears throat> and let's move on to the next discussion of the Arian controversy. It says, Aris Cone, Greek 256 to 336, was a uh, Cyrenic uh, and priest in the Baclius in Alexandria. His teachings about the name of the Godhead in Christianity, which emphasized God the Father, uniqueness in Christian subordination under the Father, and his opposition to what would become the dominant Christ- the Christology they call it Homosian Christology, made him primarily topic of the First Council of Nicaea, which was convened by European Constantine the Great in 325 A.D. Now, as I read this, I want y'all to understand something. It's very difficult to try to go through all these different Greek names and trying to get the, 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 the uh, information right, because it's all Greek to me. Right. And you start to understand why everything is so confusing. You got so many chefs in the kitchen. Right. They're just changing stuff and and rewriting stuff and adding more controversies and putting different uh, um, uh, uh, departments in charge of different things and priests. And you see what I'm saying? It's not supposed to be that difficult. They make it so difficult to understand the word that now you have a priest that's telling you what you should know, and now the whole world went to hell. Um, Arius is notably primary because of his role in the Arian controversy, a great 4th century theologian conflict that rocked the Christian world and led to the calling of the first economical council of the church. This controversy centered around centered upon the nature of the Son of God and his precise relationship to God the Father. Origin and Arius says, like many third century Christian scholars, Arius was influenced by the writings of Origin, widely regarded as the first great theologian of Christian Christianity. 
However, while he drew support from origin theories on the logos, he did not agree on everything. Ayers clearly argued that there was a time when the sun did not exist and that the logos had a beginning. By way of contrast, Origen taught that the relationship, uh, the relations of the Son to the Father had no beginning. Origen objected to Origen's doctrine, complaining about it in the letter to the, the, the comedian Eusebius, who had also studied under Lucian. Nevertheless, despite disagreeing with Origen on the point, Arius found solace in his writings, which used which had expression that favored Arius' content that the Logos was of a different substance when the Father and owned his existence to his Father's will. However, because Origen's theological speculation were often preferred to stimulate further inquiry rather than to put an end to any given dispute, both Arius and his opponents were able to invoke the authority of this revert uh, revered at the time theologians during their debate that's also Wikipedia 2011 okay <clears throat> now I wanted to lay the ground so I can finally get to the main point of this discussion now if origin the child of horse is the root then this article will explain the core this is from an article found called Christianity and Platoism, okay? The core, okay? Christianity and Platoism, many Western churches, including Augustus of Hippo, have been influenced by the Plato, Platonism. Platonism influenced Christianity through Clemente of Alexandria in origin, and the Cappadonian fathers at St. Augustine were heavily influenced by uh, Platonism, as well with the encounter through the Latin translation of Marius Victorious of the work of uh, Fafru. Plato. Platonism was considered authority in the Middle East, uh, in the Middle Ages, and many Platonic notions are now permanent elements of Catholic Protestant Christianity. Platonism also influenced both Eastern and Western mysticism. Meanwhile, Platonism influenced various philosophies, while Aristotle became more influential than Plato in the 13th century. St. Thomas Aquinas' philosophy was still in certain respects fundamental. Platonic, with the Renaissance scholars, became more interested in Plato himself. In the 16th and 17th and 19th centuries, England, Plato's ideas influenced many religious thinkers. Orthodox Protestantism on um, Continental Europe, however, distrusted natural reason and has often been called of uh, Platonism. Now, that was from Wikipedia, 2011. Because this is a, re a redo of an older uh, uh, revised edition, a revising edition. So, and they wanted to make sure that I added some things in that I didn't think about. Okay, now, um, I want you to think of this. Uh, when I talk about this, right, what you think of the Hermetic Kabbalah, the Western, Western esoteric traditions of mysticism and the occult? This religion of Hermetism comes from Neoplatoism, okay? Neoplatoism. The same religion that influenced John Dees, Sir Francis Bacon, Helen Blavatsky, 
and the creation of the uh, Theosophical Society. Right? The Theosophical Society. Now, I did a broadcast on this years ago about the Founding Fathers and the Rosicrucian Order. Um, the core belief, uh, the core belief, is based on Platonism. All this leads back to this, like the core belief, the Rosicrucianism, Francis Bacon. All comes back to this. All right, now keep this in mind as I speak about the, the First Council of Nicaea. The First Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Arius the priest started a major conflict among the Christians. At the time, you had many different sects. You had the Hebrew Christians, whom I spoke about earlier. They were the original Christians and true core, Yahshua being the head, of, of course, of this core. Right? Now, this is where they're. You had the lay apostles that made different groups, like the they call them the Serithians, the Ebonites, the Ecclesiastes, the Essenes. I know you heard about the Essenes, the uh, Nozrims, and the Nazarenes. Uh, these were the core, the truth. These were sects that you don't hear of, but these were the ones that uh, were, which were the different sects of the true Hebrew Christians, right? Now, they received the word straight from the Messiah. They also wrote their, their information and put them in the caves of Qumran, okay? Uh, then you have the other Christians, the ones that converted into the faith, but still had, uh, that still they held on to their pagan belief as well, Okay. And last, you had the 100% pagans that had their own issues. Okay. Then, <clears throat> on for over this this argument was going on for over 200 years. Then we had the arrival of priest Arius of Alexandria. He divided the Christian groups even further. Now, since most of them were not as hardcore as the Hebraic Christians, the other groups fell for this new philosophy called Arianism. Um, because most of these new Christians did not have the root of the Messiah the conflict started rising all over uh, Rome, the Roman Empire and it got so bad that the Emperor Constantine had to get involved now what made this what made Empire Constantine special was because he actually was kind to the Christians okay now, this kindness was because of a dream he had. He had a vision. He dreamed that a spirit came to him and gave him a special symbol, and he placed it on the shield of his shoulders, of his, his soldiers, and on himself, and would be protected and win a particular battle. It was a great battle called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge of 312 AD. Okay? And he won that battle. Okay, History states that Constantine followed the instructions of the dream, and he won. Now, the symbol is now used as a Christian cross. The description of the symbol is like the letter P with the letter X on top of it. So you put P and the letter X, that's what the symbol was. They call it the Tyro. Many believe this was a vision. Many believe this was a vision. But when you have the whole uh, nation using graven images to represent Yeshua, you have to question where did this vision really come from? Okay, Was this all a plan just to take over from you-know-who? 
However, out of this, he started to notice the Christian God. When I say God, I would say Ayah, the Christian God. Before the vision, uh, Emperor Constantine was a Saul Evictus worshiper. He followed the sun god until after the Battle of Milavin, the Milavian Bridge. Okay? Now, the conflict. So now we had uh, the conflict. So now we, we fast forward to 323 AD, 13 years later. We have priest Arius of Alexandria. So in discord, the religious conflict starts to break out all over Rome. The cult of Arius has a very, very, power, very powerful followers. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, Constantine's sister is married to Emperor, uh, it's called uh, Lysianus, whom is friend with uh, Eusebius, who is a church father, as well as a pupil of Origen, the son of Horus. I see how this is getting, like you have like heavy hitters in here. You have emperors now battling the church fathers. And one of those involved in the conflict is a student of Origen, okay? At this time, Arius has all the power behind him, and he starts to write letters to all, the, all these bishops and letters to the Christian faith saying that Yeshua is not the son of the Most High, and that he is not really divine. Basically, he had the spirit of the Antichrist, the same spirit we see today. So a lot of the um, prophecies in Daniel can apply to this time as well, because you would die if you did not agree, right? Now, so after a few months of a few months or so, people start to lose it. Okay, it starts. The Roman Empire has two rulers at the time. One is Emperor Licinius, you know, the the uh, who is with the sister of Constantine, right? And the other is Emperor Constantine. And because of this conflict war, because of this conflict war breaks out between the two emperors. Then eventually Constantine defeat Constantine defeats Licinius. He has him put to death, and he becomes the sole emperor of Rome. Now, also at this time, Arius is gaining more power, and now is trying to pass a decree that Yeshua is not the Messiah or the embodiment of the Most High. Now, to make a long story short, Constantine gets involved. He forms the First Council of Nicaea and invites all of the high priests and bishops to the whole of the Roman Empire. And now we are finally here at the point. All that to take us to this point, the reason why the council was called. Okay. Now, <clears throat> if heirs were able to make this decree, it would be illegal to say Yeshua was the Messiah. And most likely all Christians that believe this would be put to death until they were purged out and the doctrine of Arian would be standard for all Christians. Now we have Milesian, the Milesian, the bishop that ordained Arius. You have a sect called the um, Lucian, Lucian bishops of the 
of the defeated half of Rome. And finally, Eusebius, a church father of the paganized Christian church. Then you have all the pagan the pagan priests, the new pagan Christians, and of course the true or the Hebrew Christians. Then the debate starts, and on the agenda are the following. This is the agenda of the debate. It says the Arian question regarding the relationship between God the Father and Jesus, i.e., are the Father and Son one in divine purpose only or also one in being? Two, the date of the celebration of the Pish, the Passover, Easter observation, the Milesian schemish, the validity of the baptism by heretics. Okay? Now, since the Aaron theology, theology was the dominant at the time, they had, a defeat, uh, they had to defeat him with scriptures, not uh, philosophy or emotions, just words. Now, when you read about this, this uh, meeting, it describes the people that were there on the Hebrew Christian side, they were all broken up and bruised, okay? Uh, they speak about missing eyes, lost limbs, some were burnt, missing teeth. It was a pitiful sight, yet it was admirable, okay? It was admirable to see it. At this time, uh, you know, you died for your faith, which is why priest Arius of Alexandria he better have brought his A game. He wanted to get go up against the Christians. Okay, it was, a, it was a serious battle, serious debate. Okay, now here's what it states in uh, in the wiki. It says Eusebius of Caesarea, who has described the great moments of the council, was evidently moved, as we too may be, by his recollection of the scene when the bishops all assembled in the great hall of the palace. Some of them lame and blind from the tortures undergone in the persecution. The Christian masters, the whole Rome, were entered, uh, robed in, robed in scarlet and gold, and before taking his place at the throne, uh, batted them, uh, batted them, be seated. Constantine came with a minimum of pump, pump, and in his brief address, he did not, he did no more than welcome the bishops, exhort them to peaceful conference and admit them that uh, spectacle of sedition within the church caused him more anxiety than any battle. Okay? So in the end, Arius had no chance. Okay? Now I think he had like 22 bishops that voted in support after Arius was stripped of his place from being, for being a demon. Bishop Melitian lost his ability to ordain people. Uh, he died the same year and the Aryan movement went underground. Now, what's interesting about the Aryan movement uh, went underground, it probably became an occult order. It's a fact that the Hogan Witness believe are based on some of these Aryan philosophies. They are considered semi-Arianists. Okay? Sir Isaac was also a follower of semi-Arianism. So were most of the founding fathers. Now, when the Protestant movement happened, there was an emergence. And this is how Sir Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, John Dee, and all the demonic 
angel worshipers became prominent after the Renaissance. All right, now keep this in mind. All this stems from Plato, Neoplatonism, and the Hermetic Kabbalah. Thankfully, Arius and Lucifer lost that battle. However, they eventually won the war because after the church was reformed, it became the universal church, a.k.a. the Catholic Church, which was merged with all the pagan holidays into one religious system. Then we see the creation of the popes as the ancient Hebrew Christian writings hidden, rewritten, or lost. Eventually, the whole church became corrupt as it merged with the Rome, with Rome to become the Holy Roman Empire, which gave birth to the pagan Christ. As they say, the rest is history. Okay. Now, I wanted to. Um, I think I'm going to break this broadcast into two parts because uh, the second part is so important. I think people get tired, you know, after an hour and then they start kind of dozing. And I usually have like three hour broadcasts. I'm not even sure most of my content is even heard. I hope it is because it's very useful. But to make sure that the second part is heard. What I'm going to do is I'm going to break this in two parts. Um, but before I, I, I um, conclude, um, how does this story relate to Yeshua? Okay. Because this broadcast is called Yeshua the Messiah and the birth of the pagan Christ. Right? Well, the silver lining that we should take from this is that even after the best that Lucifer can give all his powerful bishops, his Roman empires, and his powerful propaganda, all of that, and he still could not defeat the truth. The cult of Arius was not able to defeat the Hebrew Christians because they used the words of Ayah through the scribes and the prophets. You would see this as a loss if you do not know the rest of the story. However, if you keep, if you know that the truth was hidden and that our story is still being written, then you can see that we have the victory. Now, I will explain this after the break in greater detail, or I will get to this. Um, In part two, because part two, I'm going to actually speak of the curse of Canaan, and I think that's uh, that's going to be a good one. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I'm going to segue into the closing. Okay. And what I want to do is I'm going to end this portion of the broadcast in a prayer and uh, then I'm going to do some free talk here and like always this is going to be an updated version of the Yeshua the Messiah and the birth of the pagan Christ be ready for download um, after the conclusion of the, the uh, total um, revised edition 
and um, look on online for when I put this up there. I might have it up there, the end of the Passover to signify the closing. And the uh, Passover, official Passover is going to end on the 16th of March, March 16th. So I might do the broadcast for that time, for the second part, just to make sure that we keep in line with that. Um, but now I, I want to um, uh, get into, um, get in, actually what I'm going to do, is I'm going to play something, and then I'm going to get into the second part. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, play this. We're going to conclude, continue with uh, the second part of this in a few days, but I'm going to close with conversation after this quick file. Okay, let me play it. Let me find it here. If I can. Okay, here we go. All right. Let me play this and I'll be right back. In a moment like this, where things are moving so quickly in a dark direction, you've got to wonder, where are all the liberals? Where are our leaders, the people we elect to protect us from irrational and destructive overreach like what we're seeing now? Those people are gone. They've ceded all authority to those who describe themselves as scientists. Joe Biden admitted this out loud in August. Watch. If you're sworn in come January and we have coronavirus and the flu combining, which many scientists have said is a real possibility, would you be prepared to shut this country down again? I would be prepared to do whatever it takes to save lives because we cannot get the country moving until we control the virus. If the scientists say shut it down, I would shut it down. I would listen to the scientists. Now, you thought the voters were in charge of the country speaking through their elected leaders. That's why we have elections. But that's not true. The scientists are in charge. I would listen to the scientists. And Biden's not the only one who says this. This is a staple of our public conversation these days. So what are the scientists saying? Well, yesterday, the most scientific of all the scientists, the supremely science-based Dr. Anthony Fauci, told us we could all be wearing masks in 2022. This was a surprise. You thought the vaccine meant your life could return to normal. No, according to Tony Fauci, you thought wrong. Things are never getting back to normal. You and the president have suggested that we'll approach normality toward the end of the year. What does normal mean? Do you think Americans will still be wearing masks, for example, in 2022? You know, I think it is possible that that's the case. And again, it really depends on what you mean by normality. If normality means exactly the way things were before we had this happen to us, I I mean, I can't predict that. Oh, I can't predict that if it means returning to the life you love. So what can Dr. Fauci predict? Well, we don't need masks, he told us. Then he said we do need masks. Actually, probably need two masks, maybe three. And in fact, we might need those masks forever. Those are some of Tony Fauci's many predictions. We've showed you his greatest hits before on the show. We're not going to wreck your night with it again. But the question is, and we should be thinking about this, what effect will this current suspension of our Bill of Rights have on American society over time? What kind of country will your grandkids live in? Is anyone even asking that question? No, not anymore, because questions are disloyal. If you believe in science, simply obey. Meanwhile, the costs mount, the real ones, measurable, bankruptcies, addictions, suicides. So what will the country look like when it's over? Well, it could be dirtier for sure, the environment. Here's one unintended consequence of the lockdown regime that absolutely nobody is talking about. 
the degradation of our natural environment. Odds are, over the past several months of dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, you've seen a mask or two on the ground. The Chattahoochee Riverkeeper, Jason Olsis, says he's never seen the river filled with so much plastic. And we're not just talking about water bottles and food containers. We've actually pulled over two million pounds of trash out of the river system, and gloves and masks have not been something we've seen in the past. So where are all the people who care about nature? All the environmentalists, where are they on that? Well, they're probably hiding somewhere with the free speech people and the pro-choice community, too afraid to speak up. One person who apparently is not afraid to speak up is Naomi Wolf, who is undoubtedly losing friends by appearing on the show tonight. She's the author of The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot, and the CEO of Daily Clout. She joins us tonight. Naomi Wolf, I appreciate your coming on. I never thought I would be talking to you except in a debate format. I'm sure we disagree on an awful lot. But on this, I was struck by the bravery it must have taken you to write it. I'm sure you lost friends over it and for doing this. Tell us why you're, you're doing this and why you wrote that. Well, it's not just thank, first of all, thank you, Tucker. I'm really happy to be talking to you. Um, it's not just that one tweet. I've been writing pretty much every day for months and months about what I see as the terrible crisis that we're in um, that we have to recognize. Uh, under the guise of a, medical, a real medical pandemic, um, we're really moving into a coup situation, a police state situation, and that's not a partisan thing. That, you know, as you say, that transcends everything you and I might agree or disagree on. Right. That should bring together left and right to protect our Constitution. We're absolutely moving into what I call Step 10. Um, I wrote a book in which I pointed out there were 10 steps that would be tyrants always take when they want to close down a democracy, whether they're on the left or the right, they always do the same 10 things. And now we're at something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. You described it really, really well. It is step 10, and that's the, the suspension of the rule of law. Um, that's when you start to be a police state, and we're here. There's no way around it. I'm, I'm so embarrassed. And it's just, it's another example, there are a million of them, of why partisanship is stupid, and it makes you stupid. And I guess I just assumed that we wouldn't agree on stuff, so I didn't read your tweets, and I obviously should have been, and I missed a lot. And, and so, again, it's nice to remember okay. you should treat people as individuals rather than as stand-ins for whole political parties. You have been predicting this for a long time, you just said. Why don't you think others aren't seeing this? Well, unfortunately, a lot of people are seeing it, but we're not unified and as you pointed out we're a very divided country for a lot of cynical yes. reasons um i'm in touch with many patriots from all backgrounds and all walks of life who are horrified um i interviewed for instance moms for liberty a group of conservative moms in florida who are mobilizing to try to get schools open they're so worried about what's happening to their kids and i talked to mom jen say a famous gymnast and activist in san francisco on the left who's also a mom who's horrified um i you know i've, I've interviewed doctors i've interviewed you know ordinary people restaurant owners from all walks of life who are absolutely uh, un, unable to even articulate their fear and horror, recognizing that the state has now crushed businesses, kept us from gathering in, in free assembly to worship, as the First Amendment 
provides is invading our bodies, as you mentioned, which is a violation of the Fourth Amendment, is uh, restricting movement, um, fining us here in New York State. I could be fined $15,000 a day if I gather people, you know, more than 10 or 25 people, depending on where in New York State I live, um, you know, it, which is a complete violation of the First Amendment. I mean, the violations go on and on and on. I've talked to restaurant owners who are looking at a sector in which tens of thousands of small businesses have been crushed. And why were they crushed? Not because the pandemic forced them to. There is no real science underlying a lot of these closures. It's because autocratic tyrants at the state and now the, the national level are, are creating a kind of merger of corporate power and government power, which is really characteristic of Italian fascism in the 20s. Um, and they're, they're using that to engage in kind of emergency orders that that simply strip us of our rights, rights to property, rights to assembly, rights to worship, and all of the rights that our Constitution guarantees. So people are definitely horrified and noticing. I think people are shocked and, um, and, and divided, as I mentioned before. And the other thing that happened is you said this has all been very sudden. Um, and when you look back, you know, March of 2020, a lot of things started to move that kind of locked into place, a set of policies that are kind of 360 degree full-on totalitarian policies. So I think a lot of us are kind of in culture shock. Uh, luckily or unluckily, I've been studying closing democracies for 12 years. So I recognized early on, you know, once, once I realized New York State had emergency powers, I know from history that no one gives up emergency powers willingly. Right. Uh, they always drag it on and drag it on. And so every month I'm getting in my email an announcement that Governor Cuomo is extending emergency measures, extending emergency measures. Uh, only from studying history do I know how predictable it is when you start to have um, elected officials say we are not going to follow the Constitution because it, there's a pandemic. And I just want to say lastly, and then I promise I'll stop, um, nowhere in the Constitution does it say all this can be suspended if there's a bad disease. We have lived through typhus, cholera, smallpox, HIV, tuberculosis, polio, the Spanish flu. You know, we've lived through an attack on our soil. Never have there been months and months and months of emergency powers when we weren't actually fighting a war. So right. um, this is completely unprecedented. Lockdowns have never been done before in free societies. And really, we're turning into a version of a, a totalitarian state sort of before everyone's eyes. And I, I really hope you know, we wake up quickly because history also shows that it's a, a small window in which people can fight back before it's too dangerous to fight back. Man, I'm starting to think that we're being divided as a country precisely so we don't have conversations like this. And I hope you will come back. Naomi Wolf, it, what, a, what a pleasure, what an eye-opening pleasure it was to talk to you tonight. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Tucker. Likewise. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. Now, if that conversation doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. Okay. Now, Naomi Wolf is like uh, Tucker Carlson said is a liberal, and I'm, I'm neither liberal or or uh, uh, what do you call it, Republican or Democrat, none of that. I'm just a a a, 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 a trying to be righteous human being, and I see right from wrong. And from what I see, what I've been saying for a long time, is that um, uh, people 
misrepresented Donald Trump. And they still misrepresent him. They don't represent him correctly. The media still lies about this man. And they'd rather have a Joe Biden in there instead of somebody that's actually going to help the country. And you don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat to to see that. You can just see it. Uh, Opening up the border so that anybody can come in is not good for any country. If you opened your house up for anybody to come in, you would no longer have a house. I mean, it's common sense, really. Um, when he uh, destroyed the uh, the pipeline and decided to kill uh, energy independence for the United States. Now the gas went from two dollars and twenty cents to, in some places, two eighty three dollars. During a time when the whole country is going through economic turmoil. When you print a dollar to the point where it's worthless and you're pumping trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars into a country, what do you think the worth of the dollar is? The dollar is said to be four cents worth its value than it was when it first was created. Four cents. And they're printing more. We do not know what's going to happen in two years from now if they continue to print dollars the way they're doing. But we do know that the Great Reset is here. Now, when you hear about Naomi Wolf and she talks about the 10 steps of totalitarian takeover, we are in the 10 steps of a totalitarian takeover, meaning that the total destruction of Babylon is at hand. Now, me personally, I've seen it, was, I've seen it coming, and if you uh, are a listener of mine, you would see that um, the quiet coup, Bye Bye Babylon, I speak about this, okay? Um, you can go and read that. I did a part one, part two coming out soon. I also did a broadcast called The Stick and the Worm. In The Stick and the Worm, I talk about how you had lockstep and how they created the quarantine, how the World Health Organization was involved. They talk about how Bill Gates created a a um, a, a uh, what was it called? It was the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic preparedness <coughs> that they had. <sighs> had to drink something. Mouth was getting kind of dry. That's why I wanted to do the second part of the broadcast a few days from now because I don't speak like this too often. And... Uh, My throat can't handle it. I've been talking a lot about other things to other people. Anyway, it also talks about the uh, Bill Gates vaccination patent 
the 060606, how convenient, where he talks about utilizing the blockchain and cryptocurrency to track everything that you do, deliberately setting up the uh, Mark of the Beast system. Uh, it's no longer a uh, conspiracy theory. It is fact. And they are coming closer and closer, just like a snake. A snake comes closer and closer and wraps itself around you and hypnotizes you. And all these people are being hypnotized by the mass media. And as they're being hypnotized, the snake is slowly slithering up. It's like in that movie, The Jungle Book, where the snake looks in your eyes. And everybody's just looking at the snake. And the snake is wrapping itself around you. And then when you wake up, it's going to be too late. It's going to crush you, eat you. Literally, you're going to be consumed. Now, stay tuned for Revelations, because I'm going to read Revelations and explain um, what's happening. And that's going to be probably uh, next month sometime, when we're even thicker into this. I hope friends of mine will wake up soon to what's going on because they are really sleeping right now. Really sleeping right now. We have people dying from these vaccines, literally dying from these vaccines. A lady the other day, she was only 39 years old, I think 38 years old. She died from the vaccine just two days later. Of course, we had Hank Aaron, the famous Hank Aaron, baseball player. He dies after taking the vaccine, but no one tells us about it. But it's, it's, it's all hidden under the rug. Then they have this uh, vaccine that actually um, uh, couples with your DNA and, and uh, uh, creates a uh, message within your DNA to allow it to communicate with whatever else they put in your body. Untested, just giving it to you, people dying from it, when it's actually a tracking system to get you ready for the mark. And you need to resist that by all means possible. We are in some very, very, very dark times right now. And uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Nigeria. Um, Singapore. Thank you for those in Singapore that are listening. I, I noticed that I have a huge following in Singapore. Thank you so much. Um, I, I see uh, the different metrics on who's listening within the United States and Europe, and different places in Africa, even New Zealand and Australia. So thank you so much. And those of you that are listening, I ask that you can pass these on to other people. And um, download them and save them because we know we do not know long we do not know how long we will be able to communicate like this. And um, download my my content. And of course, you get permission to do that. Uh, distribute it, study it, and teach it. Okay, study it and teach it. Um, I just wanted to uh, come here uh, and uh, wish everybody. A very happy Passover, and um, 
I didn't really forget to pray in this broadcast earlier. It's just that I was praying all day today, writing prayers and reading from Psalms 22, uh, 1 through 30, to go over the um, my Yah, my Yah, why hast thou forsaken me? And it explains the whole um, murder and sacrifice of Yeshua, which was absolutely amazing. And I wanted to um, explain to the people that are listening that um, to listen for future broadcasts and understand that we can coordinate when do the proper fast uh, Passover. Uh, the Passover is going to last until the 16th. So if you listen to this broadcast, understand that 16th will be the end of the Passover. Um, what I did to celebrate mine was I cooked a, 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 um, a lamb and um, I made a nice meal. And then I said a prayer. And one of the prayers that I said was to um, bind and bound these demonic entities and destroy the power structure that is here and make them bankrupt. Financially bankrupt. Okay? And we all must say that prayer. And we all must separate ourselves from this system to destroy it. Okay? It must be destroyed. It is pure evil. And they act like you are ignorant and stupid. And they act like this earth is just for them and only them. This earth was not built for you, demon. You are going to burn for eternity. You cannot sidestep your faith. I mean, your faith. You cannot sidestep your faith. It is an inevitability. Okay? But you're trying to prolong it. It says in the word that you lose and we win. And I know that with all my heart, mind, and soul, that we win. And on that note, I will say a prayer and then I will sign out. Yahuwah, in the name of Yeshua, thank you for this day of the Passover. I ask in the name of Yeshua that you continue to bind and bound these demonic entities. Thank you, Ayah, for keeping me safe at this time. Thank you, Ayah, for protecting those that I love at this time. Ayah, I ask in the name of Yeshua that those people that are hearing this message can take it to heart and protect their families, protect their wealth, give them protection. Let them listen to the things that I've spoken of on this broadcast a long time ago. And I ask that, that you guide them towards other people and like-minded individuals so they too can be blessed at this time. Seek out your elect, Ayah. Wake us up, Ayah. Keep us safe, Ayah. For what you said, Ayah, if my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, you will heal. You will hear from heaven, heal and heal our land, I ask that you do that for us, Ayah, that you will hear from heaven, that you will heal our land, that you will uh, um, let us acknowledge your name and let those out there know that who your, who your people are, Ayah. I ask this in the name of Yeshua, Ayah. Thank you, Ayah. All praise, Ayah. All praise, Ayah. All praise, 
Okay, um, friends and family, um, I'm going to end this broadcast. Uh, I only ask that you stay tuned for the uh, second part of this, and I will speak to you soon. Peace. Well, we are just two days away from the FDA public meeting to consider whether to issue an emergency use authorization for the Pfizer I'm an anti-masker, I'm an anti-vaxxer Pharmaceuticals killing, it gave my mother cancer It killed your black panther If you demand answers, they move around The truth more than a tap dancer There's meth and crack in the community They rather force face masks over immunity What could you do to me? My fans are pouring in Ain't trying to live in the mask like Mandalorian Don't need historians See the future now. Google changing the facts, so you look stupid now. Got a ruthless out. It takes concentration. The same one said chemtrails is condensation. All depopulation, it's all inoculation. Keep trying to play God, they wanna stop creation. Had to stop debating with these little geeks. Realized I'm a goat and they just silly sheep. Freedom of speech, freedom for each. Got that nine on my hip, that's my freedom to reach. This ain't China where your freedoms get breached Uh-uh, land of the free till my breathers deceased Yeah, if you hold your ground, you gotta hold me down If you hold your ground, you gotta hold me down If you hold your ground, you gotta hold me down Freedom of speech, huh, you oughta know me now Closer look at a really important part of this, Doc And that's the potential side effects that occur to I expose the system and its true flaws. They only treat the symptoms, not the root cause. Read about the risk and the new cause. They want to mandate and make new laws. Come on, they don't care about life stopping. The Kobe vax is mainly driven by profit. But I'm a prophet, so I'll bring you the truth. Our leaders lost it. They misleading the youth, the school system. Where the thinking's induced, identity, politics, you see in the proof. I'm leaving the roof, I need to know facts. I'd rather take Borax than the Kovac. I need some more stats, I ain't no dummy. Politicians sold us out for more money. Damn, it's so crummy that we live in this way. The American dream, y'all just give it away. Freedom of speech, freedom for each. Got that nine on my hip, that's my freedom to reach. This ain't China where your freedoms get breached Uh-uh, land of the free till my breathers deceased Yeah, if you hold your ground, you gotta hold me down If you hold your ground, you gotta hold me down If you hold your ground, you gotta hold me down Freedom of speech, huh, you oughta know me now Most of the vaccines we get trigger a few minor side effects From a sore arm to some fatigue or a fever But Pfizer's data finds the COVID-19 vaccine did trigger some predictable side effects in most participants, 